Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, May 6th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, May 9th. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? Hello. Happy Mother's Day, right? Yeah. This yes. will be airing on Mom's Day? Oh, yeah. I almost forgot. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and lots of love to everyone who has a complicated relationship with their mom. Or moms who are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Or fur baby moms. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a thing. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. All right. So on this episode, we will be discussing protests in Colombia, NYC suing Chipotle over scheduling practices, the Biden administration's move to waive patent protections over COVID vaccines and a possible end to the eviction moratorium. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, take it away. Oh, why? Yes, of course. Alrighty. So this story comes from an April 28th New York Times article by Noam Scheiber titled Chipotle is sued by New York City over scheduling practices. The article, the article explains, quote, New York City on Wednesday sued the fast food giant Chipotle Mexican Grill over what it says are hundreds of thousands of violations of a fair scheduling law at several dozen stores. Uh, workers are owed over $150 million in relief for the violations, according to the complaint, and financial penalties could far exceed that amount, making it the largest action the city has brought under the law. The suit cites violations of the so-called Fair Work Week law that include changing employees' schedules without sufficient notice or extra pay, requiring employees to work consecutive shifts without sufficient time off or extra pay, and failure to offer workers additional shifts before hiring new employees to fill them. So this is actually a sort of an expansion of a lawsuit that was filed back in 2019 for upwards of $1 million dollars. Um, Lorelai Salas, the commissioner of the Department of Consumer and Worker Protections at the Office of Administrative Trials and Hearings, which is a mouthful, um, but she is quoted as saying, uh, since we first filed our case against Chipotle, we have unfortunately learned that those initial charges were just the tip of the iceberg. The current complaint says, quote, that Chipotle has made some attempt to comply with the law since 2019, but that violations were continuing. Um, A Times article from that year, from 2019, points out the irony that it's Chipotle, the, quote, food with integrity company that's being accused of these abuses. A Chipotle spokesperson responded to the current lawsuit by calling it dramatic overreach. Uh, They said, quote, Chipotle remains committed to its employees and their right to a fair, just, and humane work environment that provides opportunities to all. Because obviously, that is what they would say. Um... An article notes that the article notes that, quote, a growing body of research shows that erratic erratic schedules can exact a large physical and emotional toll on workers and their children. Uh, In an attempt to address issues like these, the Fair Workweek law includes the following provisions. Quote, fast food employers must provide workers with their schedules at least 14 days in advance or if not, obtain written consent for them and pay them a premium for the shifts. Quote, employers must also provide workers with at least 11 hours between shifts on consecutive days or obtain written consent and pay them $100. 
um, for those in the industry, that is uh, what would be referred to as a clopin, or I guess people who aren't familiar. I was just going to say that. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. damn, clopening is a Yeah, clopin. it's awful. <laughs> it's the worst. I did it on New Year's once. Um, anyway, I just, yeah. Uh, and then also the provo- uh, quote, the provision requ- uh, requiring employers to offer workers additional sif- shifts before hiring new workers was intended to make it easier for workers to earn enough income to sustain themselves. So while, while reading up on the story, I actually was actually surprised to find out how much I didn't know about what my rights had been as a former food industry worker in the city. Um, for example, there is an older paid sick leave law from 2014 that, quote, employers with five to 90, between five and 99 employees, essentially, um, in New York State must provide up to 40 hours of paid leave each calendar year. Uh, employers with four or fewer employees in New York State and an income of less than $1 million must allow employees to take up to 40 hours of unpaid leave. Um, in my own experience, it is extremely rare for a food service worker to get any amount of paid sick leave. Um, and I certainly didn't know it was a requirement. Um, it's also apparently illegal to make an employee find their own replacement for a sick leave shift, um, which is another thing I didn't know. So there's definitely a lot of uh, lack of information, I think, that um, is not, or I should say, like, it's not easily available and readily available to the public. Um, certainly wasn't a requirement that I had to read anything about it when I was hired. So um, any listeners out there, spread the word about uh, your rights as a food industry worker in the city. Um, but yeah, you know, I certainly am attracted to stories about industry rights um, as someone who's seen a lot of <laughs> bullshit um, when I was working in the industry. Um and I'm happy to hear that, you know, some the city's taking a stand against it. Yeah, definitely. Um, it is really tough in that industry to be human at times. And I say that respectfully um, to people who work in the food service industry and any service industry at that, because you are literally working in extreme situations. You know, COVID showed us a different side of extreme. But there are times, you know, people who work in the service industry, they work every holiday, every weekend. They work when it's really busy. That's actually what's supposed to make their jobs better. Um, they work when they're sick. They work no matter what. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's it's really awful that they don't have any protections, you know. So this is a great move to, you know, go in about this with this particular organization. I've heard other things previously about um, different practices at Chipotle that weren't so great. Um, yeah, like what spill the tea? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I just know that over the years there has been a few different things just about their, um, not just how they handle their employees, but even with the food sometimes, right. the way the, that they handle it and the E. coli outbreak. Yes, they okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is a, a a company that we definitely need to pay more attention to. And as much as I love it, it's kind of like don't do that too often because you never know. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, you know, people who work in the service industry need more TLC. They need more opportunities to make their lives better. Um, they are on the front lines, whether it's a pandemic or not, and they work in extreme situations all the time. So we do need more rights for them. We need this whole situation to open up, not just in New York, but across the country and across the world. Absolutely. And I, the fair work week law too, like, you know, is an attempt at making those, um, 
protect put those protections in place but this i think lawsuit just goes to show that you can have laws but if there's you also have to have an enforcement structure right just because something's on the books doesn't mean that you you know that you have those protections and it doesn't mean that your employers will follow those protections too um so yeah yeah and those things are so there's there's one thing like there was someone on twitter who asked the question like how do you define white collar crime and the best way i could think of it was like white collar crime to me is something that you can get away with if you're wealthy and usually white but the same exact thing if you were a non-white person or a white person of a lower socioeconomic status you would be locked up or like it wouldn't get it wouldn't be treated as like just a part of doing regular business and I think about that when I think of like what these corporations get away with, like how many lives have been set on a trajectory of like being fired or getting written up or you can't pay your bills because you have these big companies doing stuff like making it so you can't work a decent work schedule or it's such a heavy burden on you to take off when you're sick that like you get even sicker. Or like you lose your job because you're trying to clope in and you're getting sick because of that. Like it's really, you know, it's like you could steal something from a corner store and perhaps like lose your life. But these big businesses can basically steal from and abuse like hundreds, thousands of people every day and nothing happens. It's just treated like it's some normal, oh, like that's just part of the industry. and. I, for one, am happy that so many people in the food industry are rising up or they're saying, you know what, I'm not going back to this unless I can do it on my terms. You know, like I, the pandemic is off, obviously has been horrible, but I think it's really woken a lot of people up to like, I'm not going to die for this. Like, I'm not going to run myself ragged for these corporations that clearly didn't give a damn about me when they fired me or they were treating me badly. So why should I jump back in for like shitty hours, bad treatment and bad pay? Hopefully the, you know, the court decides in the favor of the city um, for sure. But um, yeah, like all your points are absolutely true. And I think the pandemic's also certainly highlighted that the industry, you know, the sick leave thing, right? Like, I, the amount of people who go to work sick in the industry pre-COVID, and I've heard rumors during COVID as well, you know, because they don't feel like they have these protections, they don't know these have these protections, or their employers refuse to allow the, like, enforce those protections, right? Um, people going to work with fevers, people, I've had, you know, I, I was unwell one day at my job, like stomach issues, not like a fever. And my manager like wouldn't let me go home. <laughs> um, he made me like wait until they were sure it wasn't going to be busy enough when I like, I felt like I couldn't work. Right. Like it's just, it's, it's chaos out there and it's, it's unsafe for workers. It's unsafe for customers. Um, and it, and essentially it's all like, it's a financial choice, um, at the end of the day. So, Um, and I, you know, I know it's complicated where it's like, in terms of structure, you know, like, um, how do you make sure that you have enough people able to work and blah, 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 blah. Just like, it's, it's a financial choice, right? You can always pay people more to make it worth their time to go out of their way. And, um, 
it's a tough industry and hopefully it um, gets its shit together. It better. I mean, you have to adapt or you're going to die. You know, like you see all these people that are like, no one wants to work. So be patient with the people who did show up. And it's like, you know what? Eventually you're going to go out of business or like some people are going to get fed up to the point where you're not going to have a restaurant or a chain at all. So let's hope that this does lead to some permanent change. Absolutely. Because it's very necessary and that's the future. That's the world we live in right now. So. Great story. Thank you, Emily. We're going to go ahead and hop into our first music break today. Um, I got some throwback records for you. I'm just feeling a little nostalgic. So the first one um, is a classic. It is Janet Jackson and Q-Tip covering the Joni Mitchell track, Got Till It's Gone. We'll be right back. What's what's the next song? The one about me. Oh, yeah. I like this one. Uh, what? Objection to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. So for the national news segment, I'll be covering an article on Reuters.com and it is titled The Federal Court Vacates U.S. Eviction Moratorium and it is by Jonathan Stemple and David Shepardson. A federal judge on Wednesday threw out the U.S. Center for Disease Control 
and Prevention's nationwide moratorium of evictions, but agreed to pay a temporary hold on, put a temporary hold on her ruling as the government seeks to reverse the decision on appeal. U.S. District Judge Dabney Frederick said that although there was, quote, no doubt, Congress, that there was, quote, no, no doubt, Congress intended to empower the CDC to combat COVID-19 through a range of measures such as quarantines, a moratorium on residential evictions was not among them. The ruling was a setback for millions of Americans who have fallen behind on rent payments during the pandemic. The Justice Department sought an emergency order to put Frederick's decision on hold, arguing, quote, evictions exasperate the spread of COVID-19, which was already which has already killed more than a half a million Americans. And the harm to the public that would result from unchecked evictions cannot be undone. Frederick agreed to temporarily put her ruling on hold and gave the landlord's group that challenged the moratorium until May 12th to file legal papers opposing the delay. She emphasized that she had not ruled on the merits of the government's requests. So as we see, this gives them only four days to respond. Frederick cited that, quote, plain language of a law called the Public Service Act, Public Health Service Act, which governs the federal response to the spread of communicable diseases, even while acknowledging that the pandemic is, quote, a serious public health crisis that has presented unprecedented changes for the public officials and the nation. Evictions exasperate the spread of COVID-19, as we have all seen, and this is going to make it very difficult for many people to move beyond the challenges that they faced over a year. The White House has estimated that one in five renters were delinquent on payments by January, while the CDC has said that more than four million adults who were behind feared imminent eviction. Frederick's decision benefits many landlords struggling to pay their own bills because they are unable to collect rent. The CDC moratorium began last September and was scheduled to lapse on June 30th. Other courts have been divided over its legality, with some finding the CDC exceeded its authority. Frederick, an appointee of former President Donald Trump, was the first to formally block the eviction ban. At least 43 states and Washington, D.C. have also temporarily halted residential or business evictions through the protections though protections are not uniform. Landlords and real estate groups that challenged the moratorium in court said that the CDC lacked the power to impose it and unlawfully took away their right to deal with delinquent tenants. A separate eviction and foreclosure moratorium for federally financed housing from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development is due to also expire on June 30th. So this moratorium um, obviously was put into place during Trump's um, Trump's Trump's leadership and uh, most recently has come under watch under Joe Biden's movement to help out with his COVID relief plan. It covered renters who expected to earn less than ninety nine thousand dollars a year or one hundred and ninety eight thousand for joint filers who reported no income or received stimulus checks. Renters also had to swear that they were doing their best to make partial rent payments and that evictions would likely leave them homeless or force them to have shared living quarters. The National Association of Realtors welcomed the decision, saying programs to help tenants pay rent, taxes and utility bills are preferable to the moratorium. The group estimated that 40 million Americans were behind on rent with 70 billion in missed payments by the end of 2020. 
So that is the story. Um, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here. What do you think, ladies? Yeah, it's a really scary um, moment for a lot of people, like you mentioned, Teresa. I know a lot, you know, with the end of the pandemic as it, you know, it's on the horizon, it brings a lot of really wonderful things, um, hopefully for a lot of people, but it's also um, a really scary moment when for for things like this, right, where there's been certain protections in place and now those are going to be lifted. Um, it is interesting. I think that the idea, I think in some ways, like was it the the Landlords Association or something that said they'd prefer government assistance to help? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like they're right, right? Like the government should be willing to subsidize housing to keep people in their homes um, in general, right? I don't think that should be a pandemic specific thing. I think that um, this we're getting off track. I feel like it's something we've talked about on the show before, though, with the amount of money that goes into funding shelters. Um, they could, a lot of that money could be distributed distributed differently in a way that would actually keep people in um, private homes that are safer and more stable. Um, so, it, but of course, the idea that it's you know, well, that the idea of lifting the moratoriums um, with no protections in place is a very scary. Um, position to be in. Absolutely. I know that um, things are somewhat turning a corner here as far as infections not being as high or whatever. And like there's people getting vaccinated, but we're still very much in a pandemic. So there's a lot of things that have been happening as far as reopening, um, trying to get people back into a physical office lifting these types of protections that are really acting as though this pandemic is literally over and it's behind us and it is absolutely not. So this to me just seems like another premature, like just whatever to get the quote unquote economy back up and running. We're just going to pretend like everything's fine when it's definitely still not. People are still getting sick. They're still dying. They're still having a hard time finding um, gainful employment. So yeah, it's very frightening, especially when you think about how damaging an eviction is like on your, I don't know what you call it, but like your record, like it can really make it difficult for you to then find a place. Like once you're in that cycle, it's very difficult to get out of it. So yeah, it's very, very bad news in my opinion like it i can i can't even fathom like the number of people that are going to be impacted by this yeah this issue is really really layered you know uh when all of these sort of things came down from the cdc i think it's really interesting how the cdc was something and then it was everything during the pandemic like they became the the go-to for everything that we needed to know about life as in whole. And they never really had as much power to the people, I think before the pandemic hit, obviously they, um, you know, advised, you know, states and, um, um, nations on how to move for things like this and other infectious disease problems. But the reality that they kind of came in and then, and created their own lane, um, with the moratorium is very interesting element to this story to me when, it, when you think about the legality of a civil society organization to change the way things are run you know they're deaf civil society organizations are there 
to make sure that we know the effects of all of the things that, that they can advise um, leadership on what to do to prevent, you know, people from living in poverty or um, dying from disease. But it's, it's very interesting to me that element that the CDC was empowered through this moratorium to be a, um, a voice that governments need to acknowledge. The other part of this is they're completely right that evictions will exasperate the spread of COVID. Um, right now, there's a big move to get people in the hood, you know, in lower income neighborhoods to get vaccinated for whatever reasons. And these are the exact people who are struggling with this problem. So while we're seeing a turn um, happen in the world and in the country right now because people are getting vaccinated, there's still a quite large uh, community that is not necessarily engaging in vaccines so quickly. So if we are to make these moves happen this fast, um, I definitely th think we're going to see some cases go up. We're going to see a lot of other problems. And the fact that we don't have a out plan for this just shows how much more work there needs to be done. The pandemic is not over. And I think what it did was it highlighted so many other um, just really screwed up policies and structures in our society that we cannot go back to doing things the way that we did it before. We cannot do that. So we have to do things like put protections in place, subsidize housing, find other outlets to help people and not make it a thing where the government, the federal government is responsible. I think the local governments need to take more steps to help the people in their communities because they have a better understanding of what will happen if this thing is lifted. And in the case of the landlords, it's definitely something to consider as well. You know, everybody always thinks just because you own property, you got money, but that's not necessarily the case for a lot of people. And when it's been over a year that you've been able to collect on that investment, you are also struggling. So there are layers to this that need to be solved. And it's not just gonna happen with some judge saying this is a wrap. Like that's not how you end something that uncovered a problem that was so large. All right, so I guess it's time to go into our next music break. Our next classic throwback is Method Man and Mary J. Blige. This is I'll Be There For You. We'll be right back. To this day, boo, no frontin'. Even when the skies were great, you would rub me on my back and say, Baby, it'll be okay. Now that's real to a brother like me, baby. Never ever get my cootie away and keep it tight, alright? And I'ma walk these doors so we can live in a fat ass crib with thousands of kids. Well, like, you don't need a ring to be my wife. Just be there for me and I'ma make sure we be living in the effing lap of luxury. I'm realizing that you didn't have to fuck with me, but you did. Now I'm going all out, kid, and I got mad love to give you, my nigga.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. And now we will have our international news segment. Jasmine, what do you have for us today? So this week, there were a lot of different world stories that I was thinking about doing. It was hard to pick which one. This particular story, I thought, um, had a lot of echoes with what's happening in the States and in other places as far as um, police violence against protesters. So what I'm going to read for you today is from the BBC.com in their world news section for Latin America. It's called Columbia Protest, What is Behind Unrest? Um, So there are demonstrations that started in Colombia on April 28th, and they were initially in opposition to the tax reform that the government said was key to mitigating the country's economic crisis. 
Rallies were organized by the country's biggest trade unions, but were also joined by many middle-class people who feared the changes would see them slip into poverty. So what the government was proposing to do was to lower the threshold at which salaries are taxed, which would now affect anyone with a monthly income of 2.6 million Colombian pesos or more. So that's 684 U.S. dollars. It would have also eliminated many of the current exemptions enjoyed by individuals, as well as increasing taxes imposed on businesses. This past Sunday, President Ivan Duque announced that he would withdraw the bill, but that wasn't enough to stop the protests, which have become a broad call for improvements to Colombia's pension, health, and economic systems as well as against what demonstrators say is excessive use of violence by the police forces. Bogota's city officials said 25 immediate response police commando posts, which are called, um, they're known as CAI for the the initials of um, what it means in Spanish, had been attacked during the night. One of these police commando posts was set on fire with 15 officers inside and all of the officers managed to escape alive. There were also reports of police being shot and being attacked by people with knives. On Wednesday, city officials, this is in Bogota, said the night of violence had left 30 civilians and 16 officers injured. Incidents were also reported in other cities, including Cali, where the clashes have been at their most violent. Bogota's mayor, Claudia Lopez, requested the help of the army to guard the police stations, calling the violence inadmissible. So outside of um, Bogota, in another city called Cali, there have been more violent um, incidents recorded there, which is um, the country's third largest city. Roads have been blocked by dozens of police. Public and private um, buildings have been attacked. The commander of the army has been sent there to the city to coordinate security efforts. Um, And in the midst of all this, the UN Human Rights Office said on Tuesday that it was, quote, deeply alarmed by the violence against protesters in the city, saying that police opened fire on demonstrators the day before. A community leader named Kevin Reyes told BBC Mundo that hooded police and military officers fired using semi-automatic weapons and rifles during a demonstration. He says there were women, there were children and mothers. Experts say other factors have also contributed to the unrest. This is speaking of Cali. This is the most one of the most violent cities in the country and is located in a region affected by decades of conflict waged by paramilitary groups and drug traffickers. They also point to the high number of weapons in the area. There's civilian groups calling for de-escalation of violence, according to Catherine Aguirre, a human rights expert. But we've also seen groups of citizens who have started shooting from their homes, vigilantism stimulated by the flow of weapons in the city. Um, So Colombia's government is blaming a lot of the violence on left-wing rebels, and it says the violence is being stoked by members of the National Liberation Army, as well as dissident factions of the FARC guerrilla group who have not accepted the 2016 peace deal and have refused to disband. 
So, yeah, like it's, um, it seems like it's something where it's, it started out as, you know, poor people, middle-class people were upset about, you know, potentially being pushed down from the middle, um, economic class to, you know, being literally poor if these tax laws were passed, but then even though the president has decided to kind of walk that back, the way the police have reacted so violently, like with shooting at people, tear gassing people, that has promoted like even more um, unrest. So it just seems like it's a it's a firestorm currently. Yeah, that sounds really scary. Um, what you said about people shooting from their, their home windows and it seems like... Um the chaos has reached another level, you know, um, and obviously with all of the other issues that happen in that country um, regarding drugs and regarding, you know, weapons and things of that nature, you know, how do you even begin to tackle all of the problems? I guess, you know, listening and and having the people feeling like they are being, um, you know, not heard or their points are not being considered giving them a plateau to speak. But it seems like at this point, people are just angry and trying to release that tension somehow to get attention towards the topics that are most important to them. Yeah. Um, very heavy stuff for sure. Very, uh, pretty complicated too. And I, I don't, I'm not, um, I, I'd say probably well, and very well informed about politics in that area, but, um, I think you're definitely right about the parallels, at least it sounds like, between, um, you know, police brutality and, and issues we've seen in our country. Um, I know that, you know, different, um, it's hard sometimes to map the situation of one country over another because there's a lot, often a lot of history that doesn't translate exactly. But, um, you know, I think we've definitely have seen over and over again that, um the police brutality is just like a thread that happens that when, um, uh, when there's protesting and, and there's a, a group that's invested with the power to, I guess, um, physically enforce things often it does turn violent. Um, so that, that certainly seems to be a troubling thread that we're seeing over and over, um, in our country and around the world. Yeah. It's just the leap to, it's like these bodies that are allegedly supposed to be there to protect the people, like being turned against the people just happening over and over again. Like had it not, I I don't know, like I can't go back in time or like foresee what would have happened, but I imagine things would have been a lot different if instead of, you know, the police and the military, like shooting on and attacking protesters like had the president you know pulled back on this policy and listened to what people were upset about without sicking armed men on citizens maybe it would not be the way that it is now because that is a whole separate issue that's now on top of the economic issue and the fact that you know once you start shooting at civilians and then they're going to fight back it just gets more and more intense because you're trying to you know put down them protesting that it's just escalation on top of escalation and you know the article on the BBC mentioned you know you also have other 
things happening, like where there's other criminal elements that, you know, can then take advantage of this and then do God knows what to like regular people in the midst of it. So it's, it's just really like, if the people that are elected officials, like just listened in the first place to when, you know, the people are trying to raise their voice instead of resisting them with violence like there would be so much like bloodshed that just would not happen but it just seems like whether it's Colombia whether it's here whether you know it's it's like at this point you can pick a country and it's the same pattern over and over again yeah and you know in Colombia this whole thing is about this universal basic social income program that was established, you know, during COVID-19. So very similar to what we were talking about with the rent moratorium, uh, moratorium here, you know, a lot of this has to do with people being unable to pay for healthcare during a pandemic. Like the, the problems are so systemic. A lot of this has to do with that. And this increasing of taxes during this time when people are struggling to survive, it's just, adds insult to injury to have the police being brutal to people who are literally trying to stand up so that they can live. Um, it's very scary when we get to a point where there's so much chaos, we can't even get to the root of the problem, right? It's to the point where we're just like, well, what, what the fuck is really happening here? And the reality is if this is something, this, you know, universal based social program, uh, for income for people is being taxed or being manipulated for whatever reason, privatization of healthcare. This is all about a lack of fucking resources. At the end of the day, it's about a lack of resources and people trying to do something to get them, trying to make it apparent to the powers that be that they cannot live in these conditions. And so, you know, they get violent when it becomes about life and death. And I think it's important to look at what stems these protests, because that is really where we find a solution. Yeah, I think um, I didn't read it out, but I believe the article said that roughly half of the population is in poverty. But as far as like support for these protests, it's not even just the people that are currently living in poverty. It's that those people and then also the class of people that's somewhat above them that are doing like relatively well, but this um, change would have pushed them over the edge. So it, it does seem like it's reached like a tipping point where it's not just like this one segment of the population that's really struggling. It's like almost everybody is really hurting. And um, I didn't look into it for today, but I'd be curious to know like, what's going on like with the upper echelon of people in the country that are making the most like would they be able to do this type of tax change and just affect them instead of trying to spread it out over all these people that are barely making it you know what I mean like it it makes me think of like here like there's certain people where the a fraction of what they quote unquote earn which is typically not them actually earning it's like exploit exploitation money like just a fraction of that could pay for so much to help so many people but rather than up the taxes on them or up them a little bit more it's like let's spread it out to all these people that are already barely hanging on and it just builds more and more resentment and inequality and like puts more people on edge it's you would think that these governments would learn their lesson by now but 
they don't. And so people got to take to the streets, do what they got to do. Exactly. And this is, you know, at the end of the day, why are we privatizing fucking healthcare during a pandemic? Like, this is not... This is not rocket science, y'all. This or is like period. <laughs> exactly, period. But if, it's just to add insult to injury. Like, why are you doing that? Like, what? How? Who are you helping? You know, this is not helping anyone. And these people putting all this money in their pocket, making you know healing and recovery recovery impossible for people who are dying in the streets. Like, what? This is about compassion and just the reality of what it is to be alive. They're literally paying for air. Um, and it's, it's really sad. Definitely a story to watch. Yeah. So we'll, I'll, um, keep you posted on our social media. Um, and if you'd like to read the entire breakdown from what I just read again, it's Columbia protests. What is behind unrest? And that's on BBC news. Thank you so much, Jasmine and Emily, please grace us with the good news for today. I'd be happy to. So this is a big one and also sort of an international one, too, in some ways. Um, So I got information for the story from a May 5th NPR article by Emma Bowman and Ashish Valentine titled Biden backs waiving international patent protections for COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, The article explains, quote, President Biden threw his support behind a World Trade Organization proposal on Wednesday to waive intellectual property protections for COVID-19 vaccines, clearing a hurdle for vaccine-strapped countries to manufacture their own vaccines, even though the patents are privately held. Um, Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative, made the following statement. This is a global health crisis, and the extraordinary circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic call for extraordinary measures. The administration believes strongly in intellectual property protections, but in service of ending this pandemic, supports the waiver of those protections for COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, Right now, the U.S. is reaching a point where there is more vaccine supply than demand in certain places, um, while less wealthy nations don't have access to even remotely enough vaccines. Uh, For example, quote, India is now the epicenter of the uh, of the pandemic and just two percent of its population is fully vaccinated. Quote, the consequences of not passing the waiver are staggering. Uh, Mustakim Degama, South Africa's World Trade Organization counselor, told NPR. Uh, not only on the level of the loss of human lives, but also on the economic level. We believe that intellectual property rights constitute a very substantial barrier to ensure equitable access, he said. We believe that if we could have a limited targeted waiver to ensure that we can ramp up production in in various parts of the world, we would go a long way to ensure that we address not only the prevention, but also the treatment of COVID-19. Um, So obviously the drug industry was not pleased by the Biden administration's announcement because of capitalism. Um, But the good news is that, quote, the HIV crisis gave way to a precedent in relaxing patent restrictions. In 2001, the WTO added the Doha Declaration to its Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS, agreement to allow low-income nations to import and develop generic versions of patented medicines. Um, so this is huge, and it's also something we've recently discussed on the show, um, and the importance of um, you know putting capitalist interests aside um, to really help end the pandemic and get um, 
you know, everyone all over the world access to the vaccines as soon as possible um, is is vital. Um, so very cool that the Biden administration is throwing their support behind it. So what what does that concretely mean as far as throwing the support? Like, is that going to mean? Right. Like, what's the authority behind Yeah, that, that is a great question. So um, I'm pulling up the article now. So I think that uh, I think I don't think it's a unilateral choice. I think there has to be negotiations that are made. Um, I it's in it related to the HIV example that the article gives. It looks like there. Um, obviously, drug makers were like, no, 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 money, money, money. But then Nelson Mandela actually, um were like you're profiting off of uh South Africa's crisis and they and they ret- you know gave in and and to the patent restriction uh lifting the patent restriction. So I think it's probably um somewhat symbolic but also a sign that there will be attempts to negotiate these things. Um so it's not a concrete uh, my interpretation at least I haven't read anything specifically saying um what happens now um but yeah i think i saw something Mm -hmm. like canada is still on the fence like it Mm -hmm. was like a world map of countries that have put forth a statement like this Mm -hmm. and the u.s is like one of the most recent but there's still i think brazil Mm -hmm. canada and a few others are still like undecided or they haven't said yeah and i or maybe it's like if everyone in those big countries says it maybe that will push it faster but i also it'll probably depend on where the patents are filed right so the pfizer one is like is you is the u.s and i think germany jointly um johnson and johnson you know what you know what i'm saying i'm not sure if if it if it's an American company, if it matters if Canada agrees or not, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a patent law expert by any means, (laughs) but yeah, but this is certainly, it's certainly the right direction to be moving in at the very least. Yeah. And they need to hurry the hell up because like this thing is evolving at the speed of light. Why are they taking so fucking long with this? Like, I just feel like this is, this is, it's it's so sad that we have to talk about capitalism being a reason that we can't fucking save people dying from a global pandemic. I know. Like, what what are we really doing here? I know. I just, I know. And then the production has to happen and the access has to happen. So it needs to, it is a good step, but I just, it should have been happening and it needs to like lead to some action. Yeah. I agree. Exactly. So basically all the big countries, just take 10% of your shit and send it to the small countries <laughs> so we can get some level of equality here. And that's not even enough, but it's a start, you know? I know. Part of the issue too is the vaccines at this point require such like specific refrigeration. Refrigeration. Anyway, you said it. Like, so, so shipping them, right? That stuff that's, you know, it, it's, it's, making them in the actual countries themselves would lift a bunch of barriers or the ability to. Right. So, right. yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. That's well, that's story. a great story. Thanks for following up. I actually watched a really great segment on the today show about, um, one of their, um, journalists was delivering um, vaccines to Uganda and they showed the like eight hour trip to get 40 doses to the small community out there just for the healthcare workers. 
um, in that community, which was the, the segment was, wow, it was, it was really eye opening. I'll try to share it on our Facebook in the coming days so it can uh, run in alignment with the story. Um, but thank you so much for sharing that story. Definitely something to consider. Um, and thank you everybody for listening to objection to the rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on radiofreebrooklyn.org on Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page that's at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK with no spaces, no punctuation. We also have an Instagram page. That Instagram page is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces and no punctuation. Uh, you can see links to related articles to what we speak about as, as well as other things. So yeah, follow us there and listen to our old episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. Please listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We are going to end today's episode with one of my favorite throwbacks. I have been totally into this group, these two groups for this week. And I hope you really enjoy it and that the track inspires you. This is Rose Royce and the Pointer Sisters with You Gotta Believe. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mommy's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the mamas. Pam Scott. <laughs> My mommy.
And we have time for one more track. So for Mother's Day, here's Mama Used to Say by Junior.